Hey, welcome to episode number 32 of More Than Bread. My name is Dan Nold. I'm a pastor, your Bible reader, and your host for this podcast, More Than Bread. The, the podcast title is a constant reminder of the saying from Scripture that we cannot live by bread alone. We can't live by stuff, can't live by the external achievements, but rather we live, we thrive by every word that drips from the mouth of God. So we need more than bread. And I, I hope that like me, um, you've been gaining a, a bit more hunger for the words of God found in the Word of God. I'm, I'm praying that you are finding a certain soul satisfaction as the Spirit breathes life into the Scripture for your heart, mind, and soul. So in the last episode, we took a, a bit of a detour from the reading guide that I'd planned out at the beginning of this series. And instead of reading both Philippians and Colossians together, I only did Philippians. Neither book is that much to read um, in fact, Colossians is going to be even shorter than Philippians, but I don't know. I just, I simply could not imagine not pausing in both. Both books are so different and so good, so much good stuff in them. So in the last episode, we read and paused in Philippians, and this episode is all about Colossians. This letter from Paul to the church in the small community of Coloss was probably written around 62 A.D., about the same time as Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Both letters were sent with Tychicus, um, you can see that in Ephesians 6.21, and Onesimus, probably during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, uh, which we read about in Acts 27 and 28. The, the church was likely started by Paul during his three-year mission in Ephesians, in Ephesus, excuse me, when a man by the name of Epaphras came from Coloss to Ephesus and responded to Paul, responded to Paul's sharing about Christ. He, he became a, a Christ follower and then he went home and began talking to all his neighbors about Jesus. That's how churches start and, and a church was started. But here is what I love about the New Testament book we call Colossians. It is passionately, passionately thrilled with Christ. Colossians is one of the most Christ-centered, Jesus-loving, Son of God-exalting books in the Bible. I mean, it just, it's filled with variations on the theme of Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith and, and the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the creator of all things. And in fact, all things were created by him. And in fact, all things are even now held together in him. He is the head of the church, the resurrected one, our savior through the cross, our victorious champion over sin and Satan. He is the Lord of glory, the Lord of life, our model for living. On and on, Colossians is an exaltation of the exalted Christ. And if you ever need a, a pick-me-up reminder of the treasure that has been given to us in Christ, just take 15 or 20 minutes and read through Colossians. Maybe even do it twice. It's such good stuff for the soul. So let's dive in. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, I'll be reading Colossians chapters 1 through 4. Colossians 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people in the city of Coloss, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I love that greeting of Paul. It's kind of like there's, there's only a couple of things that you need to know about ourselves, where we live, and who we are. Where we live, what our relationships are, we're faithful brothers and sisters, and, and our identity, we talked about that last episode, is that we are in Christ. We live in Coloss. We're part of the family of God. 
and we find our residency, our address, our identity in Christ. Paul continues and says, may God our Father give you grace and peace. Verse 3, we always pray for you and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And again, I'm just going to pause for a moment and just say, I, I, I love that sense that the, the words that Paul pulls together of our faith in Christ that leads to our confident hope of what has been reserved for us in heaven. And that this sense of expectancy is directly tied to the good news. When we become people of good news, our, our hearts are filled with hope and we begin to live with a sense of expectancy. If, if for no other reason, because of the fact that we believe what God has reserved for us in heaven is good. Verse 6, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your life from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power so that you'll have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belong to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You know, one of the things I love about Paul is his prayers. It, not only was he a man of prayer, but I just, I love the content of his prayers. And, and if you struggle with praying, let me encourage you. One of the best ways to, to kind of grow in your language of prayer is to read and pray the prayers in Scripture. I mean, the Psalms are full of them, but, but Paul is also. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And, and here in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, we haven't stopped praying for you. And then he goes on and he tells them. In, in essence, he prays for them in the letter. He says, I'm, I'm praying that, that, that God would give you complete knowledge of his will. I'm, I'm praying that your life will produce every kind of good fruit. I'm praying that you will grow to learn to know God better and better. I'm praying that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. I just think Paul's prayers are, are, are like a, a language that we can begin to learn for our own prayers. I encourage you, pray Paul's prayers for your family, for yourself, for your neighbors. Amazing. Verse 15, we start to get into um, this first variation on Christ. Verse 15, Paul writes, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him 
and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Oh, I just I, I need to read some of those again. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead, first in everything. For God, listen to this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, and and yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly, stand firmly in it. Continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret the secret referred to, Paul says in these verses before, the secret that was kept, the message that was kept secret for centuries. And this is the secret, Paul writes at the end of verse 27, Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We, we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Colossians chapter 2. I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged, knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is by Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Repeat that. In him, in Christ, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. But let your roots go down deep into him and, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. 
Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. My words, we we heard this a, a few moments ago in a little bit different way, but hear it again. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Paul's talking about the deity of Christ. Verse 10, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And before I go on, there may be some of you who have never been baptized. And there may be some of you who grew up in traditions that baptized in a different way. And and I'm not saying anything negative about them. But let me just tell you um, what we believe about baptism. We believe that baptism is a symbolic act that connects us to the the, the burial, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So when Paul says you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, he, he's talking about going under the water, immerse, being symbolic of, of Christ being laid in the tomb, of Christ dying. And then when we come up out of the water, it's symbolic of being raised to new life. Because we say in our baptism that, number one, we believe this was an historical act. This really happened. That Jesus died and was raised again. And because it happened, we, we believe that, that it can happen to us. And, and that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 12. Verse 13, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And, and again, before I go further, just I want you to picture that in your mind. That, that moment, we're coming up to it in, in Good Friday at, at this time as I, as I record this. It, it's coming soon. And, and, and even if it's not, when you're listening to this, we... we we, we recognize that the cross is so central in our theology, our understanding of who Jesus is and what the good news is. And so here's, here is Christ hanging on the cross, forgiving our sins. And, but, but Paul puts it this way. He gives this picture in verse 14. He says, he canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Everything that we owed because of our sin, every consequence, God nailed it to the cross. Jesus nailed it to the cross in the crucifixion of Jesus. And by doing this, he disarmed. He took away, he took away the strength. He took away the offense. He disarmed <laughs> He took away the spiritual guns of the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Something incredibly amazing happened at the cross. And that's what we get to buy into. Verse 16. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or do, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For those rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. 
for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. But you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Colossians chapter 3. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Paul is simply saying here, my words, that that there are priorities that there are priorities for your heart and your mind to ponder. And, and those priorities sit with Christ. <laughs> that, that nothing in the world should matter to us more than Christ. So think about the things of heaven, not just the things of earth. For you died to this life. You should be less interested in this life than anybody around you who does not follow Christ. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid, get rid, get rid, get rid. I'm doing the repeating there. Get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds and instead put on your new nature. Make sure you you don't miss this, my words. Paul's not just saying take something off. He's saying put something on. He's not just saying get rid of the sin. He's saying do good, right? Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior. Don't lie to each other. But verse 10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, Clothe yourselves. Here's what we're putting on. My words. Here's what we're putting on. Take off the sin. Here's what we're putting on. Verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Always be thankful. Always, always, always be thankful. That ties in to what we read yesterday in Philippians. Verse 16. 
Let the message about Christ in all its, rich, all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. Colossians chapter 4. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Now, please understand, although we would say that there is no good type of slavery, that in in Paul's day, in that context, this was a little bit different than the racial injustice that that the African Americans, that black people have suffered in, in, in our country. This was almost more of a, a business re- arrangement, not quite that, but, but there was a, a debtor, there was a, a, a person who was working off um, a, a great debt, and oftentimes that's what you had here in the master and slave kind of situation. And, and in reality, if you read through all of the New Testament, that there's no other religion in the world at that time that began to elevate the value and, and, and the worth of every individual person, regardless of what race they were, regardless of, uh, of what gender they were, or regardless of what their economic station in life was. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we were doing and to encourage you. I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas's cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. And Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God. And what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Heropolis. And before I finish out with those last few verses, I just want you to 
to picture Epaphras. Epaphras was probably the one who came to Ephesus from Colossus, and that the first one who became a follower of Christ went back to his community, to his city, to his neighborhoods, and, and began to tell them about Jesus. And, and, and as he told them about Jesus, people began to, to become Christ followers just like he was. And, and now Paul says, listen, I want to tell you that Epaphras earnestly prays for you. And in fact, the wording in here when he says he prays hard, he prays earnestly, the, the, the picture here is he wrestles for you in prayer. He travails for you in prayer. God has given him a burden on his heart. And I, I, want to, I just want to encourage you two things. Number one, where you are at today in your relationship with Jesus, there has been somebody, there's been somebody who's wrestled in prayer for you. And I want to encourage you to return the favor. There is somebody, a neighbor, a family member, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, that that I believe the Spirit of God is calling you to wrestle in prayer for them, to pray hard for them, to pray hard that they might become a Christ follower. And if they are a Christ follower, to pray hard that they would follow Jesus with all their hearts. Do not underestimate how much God will respond to that kind of prayer of even just one person. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter that I wrote to them. We don't have that one. That's my words. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. Remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. You know, if there's one question that Paul's letter answers, I think it's this question. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the son of God, the one for whom we have waited? Are you the king of a new kingdom? Are you the savior of the world, lover of my soul? Are you the are you the one? Are, are you the one the Jewish people would have said, the Messiah, the Christ? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And if you're not sure what Paul thinks about Jesus, <laughs> then listen to Paul's answer of that question. Is Jesus the one? He, he writes in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. He, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the one. Paul would tell you today, he is the one. I mean, think about this. Jesus was born in a small rural village over 2,000 years ago, and yet he always was, always is, and always will be. He rarely traveled far from home. He was not a world traveler, but he created the whole world. He lived a few years past 30, but his life divided history into two times, the time before Jesus and the time after Jesus. He was born to a blue-collar couple, father a carpenter, mother a teenager. He could identify with today's working poor, the marginalized of life. In his lifetime, did more than a dozen call him friend? Did more than, than a few hundred ever call him leader? Did more than a few thousand ever hear him speak? He didn't start a business or lead an army or get elected to office. Many people simply 
missed him. But they didn't know that he was the one. Of course, sometimes it was hard to miss that he was the preeminent one. Like that time when they were out on a boat and a storm came. This wicked storm. Experienced sailors were fearful. Waves higher than a house tossed them back and forth. They thought they were going to die until Jesus woke up from his nap and spoke to the storm and said, Be still. Who is this man? Peter wondered. And even the wind and the waves obey him. Or how about the time when he took a sack lunch from a young boy and fed enough people to fill a stadium and then, and then some. And there were people those days who thought that he was one or the one. Or how about that day when, when he hung on a cross and he called upon God to forgive the ones who put him there. And then when he died, the world got dark and the earth shook. And there was a Roman soldier there that day who said, Oh, I don't know, I think he was the one. Or how about a few days later when he rose from the dead, showed up at dinner. Everyone but Thomas said, you are the one. And all of us, each and every person, every one of us, if you're listening to my words, we must ask that question. Jesus, are you the one? And understand if he really is the one, if he really is who he claimed to be, then he is the single most significant person who ever lived, whoever walked, whoever walked on the earth. He is preeminent in everything. And that word preeminence is the Greek word proteo, which means to be first in rank, influence, and importance. Surpassing all others, he is first in everything. He is unequaled, without parallel, unmatched, beyond compare, second to none. He is preeminent in everything. There is nothing more in value than Christ, for he is nothing less than God and nothing else can bring us life and satisfy our hearts. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. He is preeminent in everything, Paul says. Why? First of all, because he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when I look at Christ, I see the face of God. Now, when Paul talks about Jesus being the image of God, he uses a very specific word. When we hear the word image, we often think copy, not the real thing. But the word Paul uses for image actually means manifestation. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is God showing up. (laughs) Later, Paul says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, when you see the face of Jesus, you see the face of God. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone who couldn't believe in God. And I ask them to describe the God they can't believe in. And And when they're done, I'm thinking, wow, I couldn't believe in the God you're describing either. Listen to me. Regardless of your politics or or whatever atrocities you lay at Christianity's feet, in spite of every hypocritical Christian you may have had the, the joy and privilege of meeting, the question remains, what do you believe about Jesus? Because if we want to know what God is like, we need to look in the face of Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus? I see a man who went out of his way to love people in the margins of life. I see tough love mixed with amazing grace and and an impatience with those who loved religion more than they loved people. I see deep peace mixed with an uncontainable passion for his purpose. Eyes that saw the invisible people. Unhurried joy. Sacrificial love. When I look at Jesus, I see the boldness to call us to to give our lives to him. 
and the courage to give his for us. I, I see the power to change our world. And the more I ponder Christ, the more I realize there is nothing more than him. He is preeminent. There is nothing more in creation. What did Paul say? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created by him and for him. Everything by him and for him. I mean, think for a moment about a part of creation that you particularly love. For me, it's the fall colors in Pennsylvania. Maybe for you, it's the view of the ocean or a mountain vista, the colors of the fish in Hawaii. All of it was created by him. Without him, nothing. But not only was it created by him, it was created for him. I mean, even if we did not exist or if there was some part of creation that no human ever sees, creation would still fulfill its purpose because it is for him. I love the stars at night. When I get to watch the Milky Way, it's amazing. I've read that there are more than 50 billion galaxies in the universe, and each of those galaxies has an average of 2 to 4 billion stars. So 50 billion galaxies times, let's say, 3 billion stars would give you the number of stars in the universe. One astronomer (coughs) suggested this picture. He said, take a box of salt, pour it on the ground, Now pour out 10,000 more boxes of salt. Those grains of salt represent the stars in just the Andromeda galaxy, which is one of the 50 billion galaxies in the universe. And and listen to me. If we never ever see the stars of 49,999,999,999 of those galaxies, it's okay because not only were they all made by him, they were all made for him. I mean, we could talk about the marvel of creation that is you and, and I. And, and I know maybe you, you don't think you're that much or maybe you think you're too much. But, but just the biology and the chemistry of you is enough to cause angels to shake their heads and wonder. And it's all by him and for him. You are for him. And that's not even touching things like gravity, electricity, and physics. In fact, when it comes to physics, Paul says that in Christ... All things hold together. Everything is held together in him. Gravitational forces, the force that holds the nucleus of an atom together, without Christ, creation goes back to chaos. And that's not all. Not only is Christ preeminent in creation, he's preeminent in recreation, the creation of a new order, a new resurrection life found in the church. Paul writes in verse 18, he's the head of the body. The church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Listen, there's nothing more important than the church, nothing of greater value. There's nothing more in the church. There's nothing greater than Christ. Christ is the treasure of Christianity. With all my heart, I believe that the church is the hope of the world, but only because the church is on the heart of Christ. Listen, I don't know why you're listening to this, my words, my voice, but if it's not because of Christ, you're missing everything. I don't know why you connect with Calvary or with me or how you connected to this podcast, but if it's not because of Christ, you're missing something. I mean, sooner or later, I'll let you down. Every person in the world will let you down, but Christ, Christ is the head of the body and the bridegroom. He, he's, the, he's the beginning of life, the beginning of everything. He's not just prominent. He is preeminent. He's not just sufficient. 
He's sovereign. He's not just someone. He's the one. And in the end, the question that each and every one of us must answer, not just once, every day, not just once, but daily. I don't care how long you've been a Christ follower. The daily questions today, what will I do with Jesus? Listen to these words from Max Locato as I close about Jesus. He says, forget MVP. He's the entire league. Head of the parade, hardly. No one else shares the street. Who comes close? Humanity's best and brightest fade like dime store rubies. Next to him, dismiss him, we can't. Resist him, equally difficult. A savior found by millions to be irresistible. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The reward of Christianity is Christ. Do you journey to the Grand Canyon for a souvenir t-shirt or the snow globe with snowflakes that, that fall when you shake it? No, the reward of the Grand Canyon is the Grand Canyon. The wide-eyed realization that you are part of something ancient, splendid, powerful, and greater than you. The cachet of Christianity is Christ. Not money in the bank or a car in the garage or a healthy body or better self-esteem. The Fort Knox of faith is Christ. Fellowshipping with him, walking with him, pondering him, exploring him. The heart-stopping realization that in him, you are part of something ancient, endless, unstoppable, and unfathomable. And that he who can dig the Grand Canyon with his pinky thinks that you are worth his death on Roman timber. Christ is the reward of Christianity. Let me pray for you. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts so that we may ponder anew, ponder better, deeper, with with greater insight into the treasures of Christ. May we treasure Christ. May we be so passionate about Christ. Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts, stir something up in our spirits that we might be a people who above all love Christ, are passionate about Christ, know Christ, set our eyes on Christ. God, I pray for each and every person who's gotten so confused about philosophies of the world and and, and all the arguments back and forth. And, and I pray that, 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 like Paul said, we would be driven, we'd be compelled by a pure and simple devotion to Christ. We thank you that you are worth it, Jesus. You are worth it. You, you are worthy of our devotion. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.